Let's pray, shall we? Father, that you would love us is um, really beyond our comprehension. If we understand anything of our own sinfulness and your holiness, it is amazing that you would care for us, that you would love us, and that in your grace, kindness, mercy, you have opened our hearts and our eyes, our spiritual eyes, and given us faith and repentance, given us life, that you would save us and make us your children, sinners that we are, is just absolutely amazing. We gather together today to worship you because you are worthy of every ounce of strength. You're worthy of every song we sing. We love you. We hope and pray that you'll be lifted up today, that we will um, put aside for this short time thoughts of everything else, that our focus will be you and only you. Certainly as we do that, we'll edify and encourage and bless one another. That's part of what occurs during biblical worship. But I pray that we'll not think so much in terms of that, but think more in terms of you, your greatness, your sovereignty, your majesty, your holiness, your love and kindness, and worship you. As we hear your word preached, as pastor opens your word today, help us to respond biblically, to be on the edges of our seats, wanting to know more, wanting to hear every word, and then to respond to those words with humble hearts. When your word convicts us, don't allow us to turn away from that conviction in pride, but rather, Father, use it to bring us to obedience. When your word communicates something that brings us joy, help us to be, to be joyful, to understand that so much of your truth is so wonderful in regard to us that it brings thankfulness, gratitude, joy. Help us to respond to your word accordingly. And as we sing, Father, whether we have wonderful voices or not, help us to lift them up because you're listening. There's something about your people singing as a people, as a congregation, as a family like we're doing today. There's something about that that you love. And so help us to do that with with great passion. Father, we do come today before you as imperfect, fallen people in a fallen world. And we confess to you that our daily lives, in our daily lives, there are times when we do wrong. We think incorrectly. We think sinfully. We say things that we shouldn't. We do things that displease you. And Father, I pray that You'll forgive us for those times and keep our feet pointed in the right direction. We are grateful for your love to us. We pray for those in our congregation who cannot be here today for one reason or another. Minister to them as they're away. Care for them. Pray for Jack as he's home uh, ill. We think of Kendra and the girls and the fact that they're home today with illness and others. Please, Father, minister in their hearts, in in their lives today. Use the preaching of your word. Use every part of this service to lift up Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.
Good morning. morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. Uh, If you're using the Bible provided in front of you, that can be found on page 624. Again, that's Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, on page 624. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I, created, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be cursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruits. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. Will they, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, this is the Bible's last chapter. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1041. We're going to begin in a word of prayer this morning, and then we'll consider the text. Let's pray now. Our Lord, we are so grateful for every Sunday morning that we can gather together and worship you. We thank you for the gift of your word and the opportunity to open it, to read its contents, and then to study it together. And Lord, would would you help us now as we near the end of our study of this amazing book, this book of Revelation. Lord, use today's text to give us another sense of the glories that await your children, and help us, Lord, to to build our anticipation for it, to long for the consummation of all things. And Lord, might it motivate us to be faithful witnesses to those around us, that they might join us in this great climactic finish to your redemptive plans. Help us today, Lord, minister to our spirits with your spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the story is told of an old woman named Martha. One day she got on the phone with her pastor, and she said, Pastor, would you please come over this afternoon? Of course, her pastor said yes. So he arrived that day about 3 o'clock. Martha then proceeded to tell her pastor about the latest medical scan. She informed him that the doctors had discovered some new tumors and that these would be inoperable. And the doctors told Martha that she had perhaps three months left to live. And so she had called her pastor on the phone and, and brought him over because she wanted him to hear this news and she also wanted to start making her funeral plans. And so she proceeded to tell the pastor what hymns she wanted sung at her funeral, and he took out his pen and his notebook paper, and he began to write it all down. She told him what hymns she wanted sung. She, she told him what scripture passages that she wanted read. She also had a, a few words uh, about, about the message that he would give and, and what she wanted to make sure that, that he shared in his message. And then Martha had this very strange request. She said, Pastor, there's one more thing I want you to see too. She said, when they lay me in the casket, I want you to be sure that they have put two things in there with me. She said, I want a Bible in one hand, and I want a fork in the other. And the pastor responded the same way. He said, Martha, what do you mean you want to be buried with a fork? And she said, well, Pastor, I was just thinking about all of those church socials and all the wonderful meals that I had enjoyed over the years. And they always unfolded the same way. She said they, they always began with these wonderful appetizers. Then they would serve us the main course. And after the main course was concluded, all the volunteers would come through to our tables, and they would collect the plates and the silverware, but they would always say to us, keep your fork, keep your fork. And Martha said, I always knew what that meant. It meant the best part of the meal was still to come. And so she wanted to be buried with a fork. And she said, Pastor, as people file past my casket, they're going to see me holding onto this fork, and they're going to turn to you, and they're going to say, why is she holding a fork? And I want you to say this to them. I want you to say to them, Martha is holding that fork because she is a Christian and so she knows that this is not the end. Martha believes that the best is yet to come. Friends, I believe that's a good summary for the whole book of Revelation. As we've gone through this book together, we have learned that if you are a Christian, then the best is yet to come. And in these final two chapters of Revelation, we've been offered a glimpse of what our everlasting future will be like. After God has rescued his church from the earth and issued his final judgments on the world, after Christ's glorious millennial reign on this earth, when we pass from time into eternity, we have seen what God's great plans are for us. And we have found that God's plan is nothing less than this, to give us a new heaven and a new earth. And in the center of that new earth, there will be a new city called the New Jerusalem. And last week we learned that it will be a dazzling city, built by God himself. And it will descend from heaven, and it will settle upon this new earth, and it will shine and sparkle like diamond. And this city will have walls, 
The walls will be made of transparent jasper, so the whole city will look like it is wreathed in flame. And these walls will rise 20 stories high. These walls will have gates, 12 gates to be precise, and each gate will look like it was carved from a single pearl. These gates will be flung wide open and they shall never be closed, indicating that all people who want to come and meet with God in this city will be welcome to come. And as for the foundation of this city, it will be 12 layers thick. And each layer will be made of a different gemstone. And each gemstone will be made of a different color. And so it will appear as if this whole glorious city is resting on a foundation of rainbow. And it will be a fantastically huge city. 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles high. It will be big enough for all of God's people. And this city will be designed like the Holy of Holies from the days of Solomon. You remember that Old Testament temple built by the great king of Israel? It had the outer court where all were welcome, and then it had an inner court where only some could enter. And then at the deepest part of the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary. And only the high priest could go there. There he would meet with God, and that Holy of Holies was shaped like a cube overlaid with gold. And that's what the new Jerusalem will look like. A cube-shaped city, all overlaid with gold, streets of gold and buildings of gold. It'll be like the inner sanctum of Solomon's temple, but this time it'll be different because it won't just be the high priest who can enter. All of God's people will be permitted to enter and see God for themselves. I to I. We will all be like high priests. And it'll be a God-entranced city with nations the world over flooding through those gates to pay homage to the King of Kings. That is our destiny, ladies and gentlemen, the new Jerusalem. And now as we move into the Bible's last chapter And as we look at the first five verses of this chapter, we learn that the New Jerusalem will also be more than a city. Yes, a city, but grander than a city, too. In fact, this city will be a new Eden. A new Eden. Only better. Let's look at it together now. We begin by noting what will be absent from the new Jerusalem. Down in verse 3, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing accursed in the new Jerusalem, which is to say there will be nothing evil or wicked or marked out for judgment. There will be no devil in the new Jerusalem. There will be no demons to harass the people of God. There will be no corrupt rulers, no unregenerate men. There will be no thorns and thistles on the ground. There will be no more national disasters to harm the city. There will be no suffering of any kind. There will be no ambulance sirens, no sound of gunshot fire. There will be no police precincts, no military bases, no hospitals, none of it. It will all be gone. 
Because in the new heaven and the new earth and in the new Jerusalem, there will be no curse. The curse will be lifted. This will be Eden restored. Only it will be better than Eden because this time it will not even be capable of corruption. You see, that was the weakness of the first Eden. Made a perfect paradise, but capable of falling into sin and decay. That will not happen again. When God gives the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, everybody who inhabits it will be in a glorified state, perfection, without any capability of falling into sin. And then verse 5 says, And there will be no night. There will be no night. Now, the word night is used two ways in the scriptures. It can refer to those hours of the day when the sun is, is absent. It can also be used figuratively to describe sin and death and judgment. And I think all of these are in view here in verse 5. You see, the, the new heavens and the new earth and this new city, the new Jerusalem, it will be an eternal day. The light of the glory of God will shine in every corner of the city. There will no longer even be shadows in this city. We will walk in beautiful, bright light. And righteousness will prevail everywhere. No sin, no darkness of any kind. Friends, I don't know about you, but I long for the day when this is our reality. Can you imagine living in a city where you don't have to lock your front doors, you don't have to have an alarm on your car, living in a city where you never have to look over your shoulder to make sure that no one is following you, a city where you don't have to carry pepper spray or a sidearm because nobody wants to harm you. Everybody wants nothing but the best for you. Imagine living in a city where there is no crime and there is no fear. And even better, imagine living in a state where there is no longer a conflict with your own sin nature. Imagine having that sin nature utterly purged from you so that you never wrestle with, with doing what is right. You never experience regret or, or guilt or shame for any thought, any feeling, any action, because it is all perfectly aligned with the will of God. You are dwelling in a state of absolute holiness, and you know it will never, ever change. Imagine life in such a state. Well, that is the life that awaits all of the children of God. It'll be just like the Garden of Eden at the start, only better, because it will not be subject to decay will not even be a possibility that this perfect state could fall into corruption. The new Jerusalem will be noteworthy for what is absent. But then we see it will also be noteworthy for what is present in the city. Look what is present. Let's look at verse 1. The Apostle John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. 
Okay, so there will be no curse, there will be no night, but there will be a river in this city, and it is called the river of the water of life. Just like in the Garden of Eden, a great river running through. And observe the features of this river. It says, the river will be bright as crystal, meaning that it will be clear and sparkling and desirable. And our text says it will flow from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Apparently, through a process of continuous creation, God will be like a great fountain that that brings forth the water of this river. And this river will symbolize the eternal life that flows from God's being and touches all of his redeemed creatures. That is why it's called the river of the water of life. And then verse 2 says, This river will run right down the middle of the city's main thoroughfare. And then I imagine it cascading down the lairs of the New Jerusalem, maybe reaching the walls of the city. And then I imagine this river overflowing the four walls and stretching out and watering the new earth so it will be just like Eden. One great river cutting through the city and then splitting into four rivers to water the earth. That's the way the Garden of Eden was built. One river that splits into four. There will be a river in the New Jerusalem. There will also be trees in the New Jerusalem. Look at the second part of verse 2. It says... On either side of the river, the tree of life. The tree of life. Now, the Garden of Eden also had a tree called the tree of life. And the book of Genesis tells us that if Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit of that tree, they would have lived forever. But they chose not to eat from that tree. Instead, they ate the fruit of the forbidden tree plunge themselves under the sentence of death, and then all their posterity after them, join them in that judgment. Well, friends, here we see at the culmination of all things as God recreates the heaven and the earth and he fashions this new city, we find that that tree of life will reappear. And we see it growing on both sides of the river of life, which would suggest that John is using the word tree here as a collective singular, similar to the words fish or deer, a word that can be used as a singular or as a plural. I believe we will have an orchard of trees, many, many trees running down the banks of the river of the water of life. And friends, these trees will be unlike anything we have ever witnessed before, because verse 2 tells us that they will bear 12 kinds of fruit and yielding its fruit each month. So maybe it'll grow a new fruit each month of the year. Maybe in January, the tree will bear apples. Then in February, it will give us pears. Maybe in March, it will give us dates. And in April, figs. In May, oranges. In June, bananas. July peaches, and on right through the calendar year, a new fruit every month. Or maybe this means that all 12 fruit will grow simultaneously on these trees. And for one month, all of the fruit will ripen and then fall, and then the next month the process starts again, and new fruit 
ripens and then falls. Twelve months a year producing delicious fruit. Friends, whatever the case will be with these trees, the orchard will stand as a monument to the overwhelming kindness and the provision of God. You see, in the new earth, food will be abundant and it will grow easily. And there will be a great variety of foods. And anyone who wants to pluck a fruit from those trees will be allowed to do so and to eat and to be satiated. No one will go without. No one will be disappointed. And incidentally, this verse also confirms that time will continue on in the new earth. We will not dwell in an eternal present. No, there will be a succession of events. There will be days and months and years. There will be a past and a present and a future. There will be a succession of events in the new earth. And yet the physics of the new earth will also be radically different from what we know today. For one tree will be able to bear many different kinds of fruit. And time will proceed, but the law of decay will no longer be in effect. And so we will not age or grow tired. No one will die. And no one will ever grow bored either. Time will go on forever and ever. And it will be beautiful and exciting. And there will be new experiences every day. Now we look at the last part of verse 2. We read that these trees will also have leaves. And these leaves will be for the healing of the nations. That means there will be no sickness in the new earth. There will be no canes or walkers or sniffles or sneezes or surgical scars. There will be no anxiety or depression or Alzheimer's or dementia because God will provide for our perpetual health. And God will also bring relational healing to the nation. So no longer will there be conflicts based on class or race or culture. All the nations of the earth will dwell in absolute harmony. We will celebrate our differences. It will no longer be a source of contention between us. Best of all, friends, God himself will be there in the new Jerusalem. God will be there. In fact, he'll be the center of it all. Back to verse 1, it says the river of life will flow from his throne. If his throne is there, then he is there. Down in verse 3, we learn that God's throne will be firmly established, which means that there will never again be any challenge to God's throne. And God will never abdicate his throne. Forever and always, God will be the undisputed sovereign of his creation. And he will be a good king. And all the nations of the world will look to him as their king. And friends, don't you long for a day when God himself is physically present on the earth, sitting on a throne, holding all the government of the world on his shoulders? Imagine a government with no corruption, no secrets, a government that you can trust. Uh, imagine having a ruler that you want over you. That's what it will be like. Imagine a world in which all of the governments of the nations are joyfully submitting to the lordship of the king of kings. 
And all day and all night, they delight to do nothing but His will. Imagine a world like that. God will be there. He will be on His throne in the new Jerusalem. But then verse 3 also says that Christ will be there. He will share His Father's throne. And you notice the title given to Christ here. He is called the Lamb. He's called the Lamb. This title harkens back to the Old Testament days. Before Christ came, back in the days when, when God's people were just hanging on to that promise that the Messiah would come and make things right. Back in those days, God's people were saved just as we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were looking ahead to Christ. And one of the things that the people of faith would do in those days is they would offer animal sacrifices. These were foreshadowings of the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And the way that it would work is that a, a, a person would take a spotless lamb from his flock. It had to be a perfect lamb because the Messiah would be perfect. A perfect spotless lamb. And he would place that lamb on the altar. He would drain the life blood from that lamb and he would put his hand upon it signifying the transfer of guilt from him to that substitute. And the lamb would die, and he would live. And this foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ, one, one man, the God-man, dying for the sins of the world, one man dying so that all of us could live forever, sins atoned for. In Isaiah 53, this is before the coming of Christ, the prophet said he would be like a lamb. It says he'll be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. He will not open his mouth. He'll be like a sacrificial lamb. And then when Jesus finally came on the scene, you remember the famous words of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At the cross, our Lord Jesus fulfilled these words. He became God's perfect lamb, a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. He offered his blood as an atonement for our sins. He died. He paid the penalty of, of sin. He endured hell itself so that we could have everlasting life. And friends, even in the new heavens and the new earth and in that new Jerusalem, our Lord Jesus will hold that title, the Lamb, the Lamb of God. It will never be forgotten that all of this was made possible because of Him and His sacrifice in time made possible because the eternal Son of God was willing to humble Himself, to take on human flesh, to suffer mistreatments at the hands of sinners, to bleed and die on a cruel cross, and then to rise again in victory. It'll all be possible because of what Christ did. In fact, the only scars left in that new world will be the scars on our Lord's hands and feet, and these will serve as perpetual reminders of what it cost him to make the new world possible for us. Friends, God will be there in the new Jerusalem, and the Lamb 
will be there. We also see that we will be there too. We will be there too. And the verse 3 says, We will be there as his servants. What a high and holy title that is. To be called the servant of the king of kings. And what it shows us is that life in the new earth will not be static but we will always be engaged in meaningful activity. Every one of us will have a vocation in the new world. There will be things for us to do. There will be responsibilities to bear. There will be tasks to accomplish. There will be cultures to build. This new world will have nations and it will have cities, which means that we as God's image bearers will be producing cultural products. There will be literature in the new world, and there will be beautiful music, and there will be architecture, and there will be crops to cultivate. There will be administrative tasks to fulfill. There will be service projects to undertake. It will all be there in the new world, which is why your present vocations mean so much. This isn't just work to bide our time until we get to go to heaven one day and then to the new earth. No, this is preparation for our everlasting futures. And everything that we learn here now and everything that we do, every skill that we cultivate, it will be put into service in the new earth. God will use us in this new earth. What else will we do in the new world, we will also be worshiping God. You see that at the very end of verse 3. We will be His servants and we will worship Him. That means there will be a lot of singing in the new world, along with a lot of smiling and spiritual fellowship. And in fact, everything that we do will be done as an act of worship to God. Every job that you accomplish in this new world, it will be done with the intent of glorifying God with your life. Everything will be worshipped there. And then verse 4, the most amazing of all, it says, and we will see His face. We will see His face. That means we will see God Himself full on in all of the splendor of His holiness. We will see Him. And we will not be afraid. He will be holy, but we will be holy too. We'll be reconciled fully to God. And all the secrets will have already been laid bare. There will be nothing for us to hide from. This is the beatific vision. Seeing God, His face no longer hidden from us. Him no longer at a distance. But full on, you will see His glory. It'll be just like Eden when God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, only better, because this time God will never, ever have to withdraw His presence from His people. We will see His face, and then end of verse 4, we will have His name on our foreheads. His name on our foreheads. This will be God's stamp of ownership over us. And this will satisfy a deep longing in the human heart because to be human is to crave belonging. And it's to crave identification with something great. 
That's why some of you guys spend exorbitant sums of money to buy the jersey of your favorite sports team, right? Or you buy the baseball cap, or it's why people like me buy the shirts with the, the logos of the schools that I've graduated from. We, we enjoy feeling like we belong to something great, and, and we want to be identified with those things. It drives my wife crazy. I have a hoodie with my school, my kid's school logo on it, and then I've got a pullover with one of my seminary logos on it, and then I've got a, a windbreaker with the logo of another seminary on it. She says, why do you have all these clothes with your logos on it? And so sometimes, just to drive her crazy, I'll wear all of them at once. <laughs> it's why we join clubs and civic organizations of every kind we like to know that there is a place where we belong or that there, there is a great person that we are identified with. Well, in the new world, we will have the name of God himself stamped on our foreheads. We will know that we belong here. We are God's people and he is ours and it's never going to be taken away. And it'll be like a logo that everyone can see. You will know that you belong to God. And everybody else will know too. This will satisfy every human heart. To know that they are identified with the great King of Kings. Verse 5 says, We will walk by His light. It says they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Quite literally, will he be their light as the shining brilliance of the glory of God pierces through every city street, every block of the new Jerusalem. You will literally walk in his light. You will be bathing in an ocean of light. But we'll also be in his light in the sense that we will live by his word. Never again will we stray from God. Every last word will be adored by his people, wholeheartedly embraced and practiced. We'll walk in his light. And then verse 5, end of the verse, we will reign with him forever and ever. And thus our destinies will be fulfilled that ancient command from Genesis 1 to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all of God's creatures, that, that dominion mandate which humanity has never successfully fulfilled because of our sin, it will be fulfilled in the new earth and in that new city, the new Jerusalem. We will reign with him. We will be perfect stewards of God's creation. We will fulfill our cultural mandate. We will fulfill our stewardship mandate. And it will go on that way forever and ever. Christian, this is the future that God has in store for you, and it is why I say that the best is yet to come. And friend, if you long to see this day, if you long for it, May I plead with you to pray to God for it? The scriptures tell us that God is pleased to accomplish his good purposes 
through the prayers of his people. So will you pray to God, just as Jesus taught us to pray? Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Will you pray? God, send your son back to rescue his church, to conclude his judgments, to sit on his millennial throne, and then to give us the everlasting kingdom. Bring it all, God. Bring it now. Bring it today. Will you pray that God would hasten his coming? I believe God will be pleased to answer prayers like that. I believe he will hasten his coming if we ask for it. And then, friends, will you labor to include as many others as possible in this coming kingdom? That is our task today. It's why God has left His church on the earth today. It's to reach others with the gospel of Christ that they might earn or receive their citizenship in this coming kingdom. So will you not labor to make contact with the non-believers within your circle of influence? Will you not find ways to introduce them to gospel truth? Will you not teach them about the glories of God and His rightful kingship over our lives? Will you not teach them that we have all made the choice to come out from under His kingship, to crown ourselves king instead, and that this is why our lives and our world are such a mess? And will you not teach them that God is a gracious king and that He is ready to receive us back, to reconcile with us if we will only repent of our sins and trust in Him? Will you not tell them about Jesus, the one who came and lived and died and rose again, that this might be possible? Will you not tell them that there is a, a heaven to gain and a hell to lose? Will you make them understand what is at stake? If you long for this kingdom, surely you long to see it filled overflowing with citizens. Then go and talk to people and write to people. Let them be included too. And will you not work, my friends, to make your local church here, now, just a little foretaste of that world to come? Because we can do that here. We are not yet made perfect, but we have been reconciled to God by faith. And we can turn our little local church into a foretaste of the world to come. Here in this church, we can joyfully bring ourselves under the Lordship of Christ, making Him Lord of all things in life, Lord of every department of life. And we can reconcile with one another, no longer separated by race or class, no, no longer separated because of different national origins or anything else. We can be reconciled to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can be worshipers of God together here. And we can be servants of God here. And we can take the vocation that God has called us to, and we can seek to be faithful in those vocations. Seek to serve and to worship God in the fields of medicine or law or government or of, of farming or manufacturing or whatever your field might be. You can bring it under the lordship of Christ. You can serve God in your vocation. 
You can be salt and light in the world. What we can do here, friends, in this little local church of ours, is we can provide the entire world with a little glimpse of what the world to come will be like by the way that we live and by the way that we we conduct ourselves in the world. We can do that. And God can be glorified in it and others can be reached through it. So will you not... Will you not be salt and light that others might see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven? And friend, if you're here and you are far from God, will you not reconcile with Him today? The offer extends to all. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Are, are you weighed down with, with guilt and shame and, and regret? Do you feel the weight of all of that? Do you understand that, that all of this is because we have these sin natures and it makes us do sinful things and this alienates us from God? That's why we feel isolated and alone and guilty. It's why we bear true legal guilt before God. Friend, will you not shed all of that? Will you not shed it, repent, forsake it? Come to God through Christ in faith. Trust in Him. Declare that Jesus is Lord. Not you, not anybody else. Jesus is Lord. Will you not accept Him today? Will you not take your place in that coming kingdom? Well, friend, if you want to do that, will you just pray to God as I pray to Him now? Or will you seek me out after the service and say, we need to meet and talk through these things. I really want to get this settled, but there's more that I need to know. Will you do that today? Well, let's pray now as we close. Our Lord, we thank you for a good day. We thank you for bringing us to this point in our series through Revelation. We've now seen the new Jerusalem in all of its splendor a beautiful city, but also like that beautiful garden of old with trees and fruit and a river and fellowship with you face to face. And Lord, help us to desire it, to desire that others might come to be a part of it, and that you would help us as a local church to provide that little foretaste of the world to come by the way that we conduct ourselves as a church in the here and now. And Lord, I believe that as we do that, our longing for what is to come will only grow stronger. We'll only want more of it. So we pray this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.